we're going to build the 60 billion of companies I had a hand in that doesn't need us over the course of three years before I sold my half of the business. That's what we did. Hmm. We had a meeting we had in Estes Park, Colorado. And so that was probably my first wave of learning how to build a company independent. And after we started doing that, what I realized was the biggest challenge was me. I'm a control freak. I don't know about you, Josh, but <laughs> man, I'm feeling helpless and not being able to change it. And so by me micromanaging everything, it became, I was the biggest bottleneck and stumbling point for the companies I was building. You are now entering a new paradigm. So here is my issue. I wanted to find the answers to life's biggest questions. Things like, how do I become happy and live with purpose? How do I make more money doing what I love? And what does it mean to be truly successful in all areas of life? My name is Josh Forty, at Josh Forty on Instagram, and I ask life's biggest questions and share the answers with you. My goal is to help you find purpose, happiness, and open your mind to new realms of possibility by helping you think differently about everything you do, know, and understand. On this podcast, we think different, we dream bigger, and we live in a world without limits. This is a new paradigm. Welcome to the Think Different Theory. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Think Different Theory. My name is Josh Forty, and oh boy, we have a super exciting interview today, guys. I'm very excited about this one. You guys know that one of the things that has been big for me over the past eight months or so has been building a business that allows me to remove myself from the process. I mean, I had my whole success breakdown per se of working myself for you know 18 hours a day for four years kind of kills you. Um, and so when I started the company that I have now with the agency stuff, we the whole goal was to design it to remove yourself from the process. And then after you know my brother passed away and I kind of realigned values, I was like, all right, there's got to be a way to create balance, work-life balance in whatever format that is. And we just finished up an episode on that talking about uh, how we find that and how that looks differently for each person. But this next person that I'm about to bring on here is uh, was introduced to me by someone who actually was also on the podcast. And um, we got turned to chit-chat back and forth. He is a master at this. He is a master at building businesses, not jobs, and building businesses in a way that allow entrepreneurs to remove themselves from the process and really have success in this. And he is the author of multiple books. He has a new one coming out called The Freedom Formula coming out this September. We're going to talk more about that. I'm very excited about it. But collectively, he, his advisor board, and, and the team that he has built around him has built and scaled over $60 billion worth of businesses. And uh, I just want to give him a, a big, huge, warm welcome and a thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. David Finkel, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, Josh, I'm really excited to join, join you here for this interview. And thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Okay, so how... how I don't even know you. I mean, like we just really just <laughs> met right now. How, how have you been, man? How's life? Life is going really good. So, uh, you know, for me, the probably the most important things in my life are my kids. And so I've got uh, two 10-year-old twin boys and I, my youngest son is six, about to turn seven. And uh, we just spent two weeks camping in Minnesota. We go out there every summer. And it's been a great summer. Spent uh, about left, maybe six weeks of it with my family and just had a great time. Some of the moments weren't so perfect. I mean, any of your listeners that are starting with young kids, man, it can be tough sometimes. <laughs> it can challenge you, but that's probably the, the, the mo- thing I'm most grateful for. That's amazing. And it's funny because um, like I talk to a lot of different entrepreneurs and you sure. know, just in the space or whatnot. But recently, I've actually been a little bit more focused on learning about that. I am not married. I don't have a family, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I will say I grew well, up. I got a girl for you now. I'm teasing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a girlfriend. I just don't. We're not. We're not married, and uh, no yeah. kids yet. But um, I grew up in a family with eight kids, 
And so watching how my parents interacted with us. I was homeschooled. I grew up on a farm. My dad did work a lot, but out of need, not, I mean, we middle-class family, paycheck to paycheck, you know, never knew hunger, but um, watching how much they invested into us, I'm seeing more and more like how much that like played a part of my life. Right. And like really the focus being there. And so it's always really cool to me to see entrepreneurs that are like kid focused and family focused with that. And so where are you out of right now? Like, where do you live? I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And okay, in Jackson, Wyoming. Okay, so how do you? And I'm kind of just out, out, out of the blue here. How do you manage that, though? Like, how many kids do you have? Three kids. So three kids. How do you manage sixty billion dollars worth of scaling and building businesses over, however, the last twenty four years to, you know, having three kids and still giving them the time that they need? Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It's first of all, the sixty billion of companies I had a hand in. A part of those ones, a lot of that was also independent with the other coaches and advisor staff that work with my my business coaching company, uh, Maui Mastermind. But I, I would tell you, it's interesting for me that the central challenge has always been how how can I do engaging, satisfying, um, profitable business and still have a great life without sacrificing <laughs> health, family, and the other. And, and I thought I learned it when I was in my late twenties into my early thirties. I I built my first company. Actually, my second, my first company went out of business. In, you know, eleven months, I was I was done. Went through my life savings, thirty four hundred bucks. Um, but <laughs> that, that was twenty two years old. But when I came back at twenty six and redid it again, I was about four years in, and I'm sitting there in a new home I'd bought. I was in the hot tub. The first time I'd been in this hot tub after I bought the house six or seven months prior. The whole reason I bought the house was because of this view in this hot tub, and I was so depressed at that moment, Josh. I was mm. burned out. I was traveling on the road two, three weeks out of each month. I was working 70, 80, 90 hour weeks, which are probably pretty familiar to a lot of your listeners. Yep. And I'm asking myself, is this all there is? I mean, I was on the scorecard of money, was making more money than I had ever would imagine I would it in my early 30s, more money than my dad, who was a physician, ever earned, all this kind of stuff. But is this all there is? I, I'm, I'm, I want to have a family. I want these other things. I want to be healthy. All these things that I was totally shortchanging. And I made this decision to build the business differently. And my partner and I, about a year later, after saying, well, we made the decision, but we didn't do anything with it. We just, we just kept doing it the same way. It was working. So I'd get on the plane and I would give the keynote. I'd come back and have meetings and deal with staff fires and work with client complaints and client successes. And about a year later, we, we just drew a line in the sand and said, you know what, we're going to build this company so that it doesn't need us. And over the course of three years before I sold my half of the business, that's what we did. Hmm. We had a meeting we had in Estes Park, Colorado. And so that was probably my first wave of learning how to build a company independent. And, and after we started doing that, what I realized was the biggest challenge was me. I'm a control freak. I don't know about you, Josh, but... <laughs> That's I bad. Oh, man. I'm feeling helpless and not being able to change it. And so... By me micromanaging everything, it became, I was the biggest bottleneck and stumbling point for the companies I was building. It, it sounds like, I mean, you're obviously much further along in your journey than I am, but I'll tell you the whole work 80, 90 hours a week, travel two or three weeks out of a month, like that sounds very, very similar to where I was literally not too long ago. I mean, eight, 20 months ago now is when I just kind yeah. of crashed, right? And I was doing the same thing, making more money than I'd ever had, like more money than my parents, like it was crazy. I'm curious though, I want to back up because you said something in there where you're, you sit, you're sitting in the hot tub and you're like, is this it, right? Did you, 
struggle with like everyone else telling you how that was supposed to be. Cause like for me, I live on social media. Okay. So like my money has been made in the spotlight because I've grown 5 million followers on social media for, for people, right. For clients, hell, like, and I mean, I had a hundred thousand followers at the time, like every, you know, the spotlight was there. And so I had everybody telling me how to live my life. And I listened to them. I didn't know any better, right? I'm 24 years old at the time or almost 24 years old at the time, you know, making 50, 60, $70,000 a month, a balling out, right? As a 23 year old with no direction. So for me, like when I sat there and asked myself that question, I was like, is this all there is? Everybody's telling me like this should like bring me happiness. Like everyone was doing this. And I didn't want to change because I felt like if I changed, then people would think I had failed or that I couldn't handle the stress. So like be above and beyond just asking yourself that question, like what were some of the factors that played into that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and a statement I say to myself repeatedly, because I still struggle with it. I'm, I'm 49. I still struggle with the same challenge, which is how can I live my life according to my values, not my vanity? Mm. And uh, I get stuck with that too. I mean, how do people are gonna think? I, I write books. I, I, I have people who come to different events. You know, thousands of people come to events and see me at workshops. And and so there's sometimes feels like this tacit pressure. I'm much better today about it than I was prior. But I can remember in my late 20s, and I'm thinking I have to have a certain appearance with that part. You know, I have to have a certain lifestyle and the rest of it. And I, what I found for me um, that has made a real difference, um, or I'll, I'll share two quick things that are so easy. Number one, control your zip code. Um, I've lived hmm. in some pretty ritzy neighborhoods. And when I live in those ritzy neighborhoods, I actually find a lot more implicit pressure to keep hmm. up with vanity versus values. And that's one. Um, my wife and I, we live in a gorgeous place, Jackson Hole. Certainly, there's a lot of affluence here, but we purposely chose a neighborhood to raise our kids in. It's a working-class neighborhood. It's a simple 2,000-square-foot house, and uh, it fits really well. It teaches the values without us having to teach that mm. portion of it. So the zip code problem is a big one. And I've gotten a house. I've, I've built a custom home for myself in a beautiful place in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, gorgeous, multi-million-dollar homes. And what I realized was that that wasn't the neighborhood for me. The second thing that was really there was, I think for me, which was what was driving that behavior mm. was this sense of fear of not being enough. And what I've come to realize is everyone, everyone has somewhere in their heart, a small little hole. Some of us have it bigger than others that say, I'm not enough. Yeah. And just accepting that part of it has made it a lot easier to relax. People are going to judge me. People are going to misunderstand me. And that's okay. Even if I try to control it, they're still going to do it. And I'm going to live my life on my terms. So. Hmm. What? So like for you, I, and I've never heard the controlling the uh, zip code before. I really, really like that because that's, that does play such a huge role. I mean, it's just sure. from different coasts or whatever. For you, how do you decide what is enough for you? Yeah. You know, what matters most? Uh, I can give a couple questions that I've asked myself over the years that have been useful, but what, what matters most in there? Getting clean on that. So for me, it's, it's family, it's health. I met and I've had a lot of great conversations with people who were 10, 20, 30, 40 years my senior. Mm. And these are people, Josh, who have built, you know, $100 million companies, billion dollar companies. And what I see for a lot of them was they, they didn't take care of themselves along the way. Their, their kids, you know, I, some of them are starting with a second family. Um, and, and I understand it. I mean, you know, uh, my wife and I, we've been married together now. Well, this will be our, we're coming up on our our 16th anniversary and uh, actually our 17th anniversary, excuse me. And we've been Congratulations. For, thank you, 21 years. But between the two of us, our parents have been married and divorced like nine times. Oh I mean, my 
<laughs> so it was a real eye opener from that part of it. And, and so when I look at that, I, I, I think the big lesson for me was this idea of number one, if I'm going to compare myself to other people and I can't help it, all human beings, we all compare. Everybody, for sure. I'm going to compare myself to the whole picture. And that's important. Uh, I'm not going to hmm. just put a spotlight. You, you mentioned about social media. I mean, of course, that's a, I can see the glamour version, but I want to compare myself to the fact that, yeah, this, this, this person might have done X or Y, but do they have a great relationship with their kids? Do their kids light up when they come in the room? Does their spouse or significant other really care about them? Do they have a, a nurturing relationship? Are they healthy? So for me, if I can't have those things, then the money by itself is not going to be enough. The money will never fill me. Um, those other things matter. So I think that's been pretty important. And I would ask the question, you know, imagine you got the news. Um, you've got one year left to live. What do you do with that one year? Who are you going to talk with? What are you going to do? Imagine they screwed up your result. And it's now it's only 90 days you have to live. What would you do? Hmm. Imagine it was one day. And I kind of bring that down there. And I'm asking myself, why am I not doing those things now? Yeah. Um, what really matters most becomes pretty darn clear when time is fleeting. And I know it's a cliche, but we don't know when our last day is. And so I yeah. want to live that way. And that's, and I think that's super important. Um, my brother actually, so I, I have an older brother, seven, there's eight kids in the family. So I have seven siblings. I'm yeah. the second oldest. Um, but my older brother, his name was Kyle. He tragically just passed away in March, uh, in a helicopter crash. And so it was like a freak accident. You know, I'm, I'm 25. Right. And this happened a month after my 25th birthday. And so, um, that messed me up. You know what I mean? I mean, my whole family, I mean, I have six younger siblings, four sisters, two brothers, um, you know, as my parents, you know, oldest child, like you have no idea how long you're going to live for. And like, this was someone who, and my, my brother was in politics pretty heavily, um, it, like the journalism side of things. He ran a political consulting kind of firm or whatever, but like, I mean, he traveled all over, right. And did it. He brought his family with him. He had a son, a baby on the way, like all this stuff. And you look at that and you're like, Oh my gosh, like, like that. He was in the safest helicopter, the presidential of, Ke you know, the president, vice president of Kenya's personal helicopter, personal pilot, the whole nine yards, never in history has, has a helicopter of this model crashed before ever. And that happens, right? So like life can go so fast. And it's interesting how much, I mean, even for me at 25, and I go, I have a long time to live, hopefully if I live a, you know, fulfilled life, but like, it's amazing how much my life changed and how my value shifted at this age when something like that happened. And I think that that's excellent perspective with, you know, what you're bringing, what, what you're talking about there. I'm glad about that. I, and I screwed it up myself. I mean, I sold my, my company when I was 35 years old who I sold my half of it and, and, and thought I was done. And I proceeded to screw up how I invested the money and how did I do it? I, I, I let my vanity rule and, and I've got to keep that in check. Mm. I've, a little bit of humility is good for all of us, uh, especially <laughs> when we start having those early successes and and forget how hard it was to make those things work. For real. How do you... So one of the things that you mentioned though was like you talk to older people, people that were you know, 30, 40 years ahead of you. Yeah. How do you determine who to listen to in that scenario? Because here, here's my struggle. I believe that there is wisdom in age. I mean, I look at me at 20 versus me at 25 and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like two different people, five, you know, sure. over five years. But I also look at a lot of the world and I've, you know, I've listened to, you know, other people's parents about things, or whatever, particularly about money and about, you know, some advice on certain things. And I listen to them and I'm like, that advice is terrible. Like you don't know how to make money. You don't know business or you don't know like this, like 
the money, the, the, the advice that I'm getting in a lot of areas from you know, people that are maybe in their 40s or their 50s is just terrible. But mm-hmm. I know that because I have studied and researched money a little bit, right? But like for life advice, for business advice, when someone's 30 or 40 years ahead of you, and it's not the obvious, I mean, like you're not sitting down with like a Warren Buffett, right? Like someone that you don't know, but you have the ability to really seek wisdom from, how do you determine what is good advice and that you should listen to or what advice is maybe not the greatest advice for you specifically? Great, great question. Three quick answers. One is we don't know what's valuable in isolation. We only see the diamond in the rough. We put them all side by side and then it becomes Mm -hmm. obvious what it is. So I can't just hear from one person, two people. I've got to look at it from 10, 20, 30, 40 people. And I put them side by side. Two is I, I ask the test of, is this person in this area what I want to have? And then I ask the secondary question of, has this person lived a life that I would want to have that same life? Mm. Not, not so much from what is seen from the glamorous part, but is this person healthy? Is this person have rich relationships? Is this person actually have a sense of, of integrity? Can this person look themselves in the mirror if I were that person? So if I ask those questions, they've done what I want to do in an area and the, the processional parts of them match up, then I'm going to take with great seriousness what they say. Mm. Um, and the third and final one, the biggest lesson is, am I paying attention to the results of my own life? I, a piece of advice I got years ago was this idea we call liked best the next time. Stopping and asking on a regular basis, what's working well? What am I liking best about how I'm doing in an area of my company, an area of my business, an area of my investing, an area of my health, an area of my relationships? What's working well? I want to do more of that. Mm. And then I ask the second question next time what specifically would I want to do differently next time based on what I'm learning so far? And I don't need to have 20 next times. And, and this is a, a challenge. You know, look, you're clearly someone who is a, a, a success-motivated person, as are probably most of your listeners. And what's going to happen is they're going to come up with one or two like best and 7,426 <laughs> next times. It's ridiculous. I see it all the time. I fall and pray to it myself. <laughs> the older I've gotten, what I realized is one next time that I actually do and do well means more than 7,429 different ones that I never never actually implement. And so if I do the frequency of feedback where I'm not just doing this once a year on New Year's or my birthday or once a decade on the birthday that turns zero, but I'm doing this on a, on a weekly basis in my business, on a quarterly basis in all areas of my life, I'm going to make some pretty extraordinary jumps in that part. Mm. And now I can see what the experiment of using these ideas from other people that I've seen in comparison with each other, I can see what the the effect is. And if it's working, I do more of it. If it's not mm. working, I let it go. That's awesome. Who, who that's some really good advice. Who who is the most interesting person that you've got to meet and ask like advice from? Yeah. So uh, you know, I put together over the years about about 12 or 13 years ago, my own personal mastermind um, group, a group of people that we've had some change in, in membership, but you know, we get together two or three times a year in person. We get together every two weeks by phone. And these have been people who have become like my own personal board of directors. And there's one of the, one of the mastermind people on, on my group. He's just one of the most interesting people. He has a very different take on life. He comes from a very different background, um, from a different country, from a different... Um, upbringing. And, and, and whenever he gives me input, I, I love that he asks me questions that challenges my rude assumptions. You know, mm. Some of my other mastermind partners, they're just good people who've done some pretty extraordinary things. But this one gentleman just consistently sees the world through a different lens. And uh, anytime I'm around him, I love that he challenges my rude assumptions because I'm, I'm pretty stubborn and I, I think I know a lot more than I do. 
And he helps me realize that I'm actually quite a bit more um, in the weeds than I realize it or in the wrong place. And he asks these naive questions that just change the frame of everything. You know what I'm talking about, I think. Yeah, yeah. But do you have an example or something something that like for the listeners that m- might never have asked those questions, like what you're referring to? Do you have any examples? that? Uh, like yeah, something? sure. I'll, I'll give an example um, for somebody else. So someone comes to me and and, and it's like, uh, I'll, I'll, like next week, um, somebody comes to me and says, you know, David, I'm really struggling to make this key hire in our company. How do I do that? Like I'll give an example of a client we coach. Um, you know, in his company, they're about a $12 million a year business. They do a wholesale for a particular type of industry, aerospace, parts. Really nice guy. They have an issue where they, they need salespeople. And that's their biggest stumbling factor. And uh, I, 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 I teased him a little bit. I said, Nate, you know, you're out here hiring. But let me ask you, what about doing X, Y, and Z? And so here's some X, Y, and Zs that he had never even thought about. He's thinking about hiring as I put the ad out there or work with a recruiter. I fill my opening. I'm like, you're, you're always hiring. Why aren't you, you're, you're an ex-athlete. Why aren't you building a farm system? You know, how do college sports succeed? They don't build a great team. They build a great program, which means they have to have recruiters out there everywhere. I said, the next time you're at, you know, for him, the salespeople he finds best are people who are extraordinarily engaging. He sees them in restaurants or other places. I'm like, you tell me, look back over the last six months. Have you run into five or 10 people at restaurants when you're out there with your wife at a restaurant or at a retail store, which have been some of your most successful hires mm. been from people who come from that background. When's the last time you started looking for these people while you're doing your day-to-day shopping and, and eating in, in life? He's like, I hadn't thought about it that way. You know what? Mm-hmm. I, so that's an example. That's a kind of more of a mundane one with that. Right. So this mastermind partner asked me one time uh, a challenge question. And I'll give an example. He said, you're not enjoying what you're doing. Um, this is back when I had a business that it wasn't as much fun with a partner that just was the wrong fit. And his comment was, he asked me, he said, David, what hole are you trying to fill with your partner? And what I realized was I was just scared. My first real success, I had a business partner and I learned this lesson. Oh, if I have a business partner, I can build a multi-million dollar business very quickly. And I tried in my new company, four different partnerships, all of which were the wrong fit until he asked me that question. I'm like, you know what? I don't need that partner. I don't know why I was trying to fill that part of me that was scared with a partner. I just hired the key people that I needed. And you know, we've been growing 20 plus percent per year for the last eight or nine years. Well, but it was his perspective to see it fresh and different by asking me a great question, a naive question that changed everything. That's super interesting. And this this that out of the box thinking, how how much do you think travel plays into like traveling and seeing like different parts of the world? Uh, or even different parts of the country, how much does that play into your like your perspective of like figuring out and being able to figure out problems? Yeah, uh, you know, travel is a really interesting question. I, I don't think you need to travel the world to, to become someone who has a really uh, a, a sharp, insightful, novel way of seeing the world. I think you need to pay attention to the world that you're in with fresh eyes. Um, I had a conversation with a gentleman who's a New York Times bestselling author. His name's Andy Andrews, really just a nice man. And uh, what he does is he sees the world through really different eyes. He, he was doing it through the form of a joke. He shared with me a joke about, you know, hey, um, we all say that don't run with sticks because you'll poke your eyes out. He says, no one can poke their eyes out with a stick. You know, the stick can poke your eye in, but not out. You know, to poke your eye out, you have to go through your nose with the stick and go out with it. And I was laughing, but he just, he's a comedian who's written these books and he just, he sees the world fresh. It wasn't because he traveled overseas to Europe, to Asia, to South America, to Africa. It wasn't Mm. any of that. It was the Mm. fact that he looked fresh at the world. 
And the people who have this curious sense of eyes, um, you can find this travel in your own community. I, I can go through Jackson here and I can go look at businesses that do things incredibly well. And I can find businesses that do things incredibly stupidly. Mm. But if I just look at them and look at it from a novel sense, you know, what, what can I take from this? And that, that question. And you know, kind of going back to this idea, like challenging ideas, what, one of the central challenges that I want to think differently about was I used to think about I build a company by working hard. And you know, everyone would say, work hard, work hard, work hard. It's become this, this trite cultural mean as if mm-hmm. you know, the way you become the heavyweight champion of the world is you're like, you know, Rocky Balboa, you get in there, you just take punishment for five or 10 years. And at the end of it, you're declared the winner. And that, that's just such a, a crazy thing. The way people succeed in business is not by taking the punishment. It's by focusing ruthlessly. And I don't mean ruthlessly from a values perspective. I mean, like being ruthless with themselves with, I'm going to focus today on what do I do that actually creates value. When I started mm-hmm. the freedom formula, it was with that central premise. How, everyone knows that they should work smarter but so few people actually know what that actually means. Mm. So how do you operationalize what it means to work smarter individually and as a company, which is why in the book I focused on that, but it's a way of thinking differently. Most people live in a time and effort world, mm. but yet if I can step into the value economy, I don't get paid for hours, effort, and attitude. I get paid for results. Right. Yes, I need some hours. Yes, I need some effort, but it's a different type of hour, different type of effort. Uh, I need blocks of my best time focused on my very best, most high value activities. And I do that in two hours. I can create the value that someone else might take two years in my business. That's such a good way to look at it. And I think that I I like how you put that because a lot of people have said, oh, you know, it's work harder or work smarter, not harder. But like you said, they don't know what that looks like. I think that's a good analogy. I guess my question for you would be, and this is maybe looking at it before we dive into actually how that's done. There is a a question that I get asked a lot and I I am someone that also looks at like ethical dilemmas and I'm, you know, more of a, like a philosopher type person. I wouldn't call myself a philosopher, but you know what I mean? Like I like that type of stuff. So like looking at it from a perspective of the worker, okay. I am about as capitalist as they come. All right. Like I wear a shirt that says capitalist pig on it. All right. So like there's no, no saying that, you know, I'm anti-capitalism. I love capitalism. That said, I, I, I understand the argument. Like I came from a working class family. I worked at a, uh, a granary making $8 an hour at 18 years old. And I would work 50 hours a week doing a job that was, you know, literally against OSHA regulations. Like I should have been paid at least 20 or $30 an hour, right? At least for that, that I was making $8 an hour for. And so one could look at someone like me and be like, ah, oh, you have a factory job. That kind of sucks, Right. And look at the owner of the company and be like, you're working smart, right? You're working smarter. You're not in there doing the day-to-day operations, right? Yet, I'm getting screwed over. Or even if I'm not necessarily getting screwed over, the amount of work that I'm doing for $8, $20, $30 an hour, in collective with everybody else, obviously is making the owner of that company significantly more money, right? Like, And they've been smart about that. But there's the argument that's like, do you really like making you know $30 million a year or $50 million a year or whatever that company does? Does the CEO or the owner of that that's just worked smarter, do they really deserve to keep all that information for themselves and like not give it back to the, the employees, not give back to the people that are actually doing the work? Like, where's the balance of that when it comes to working smart and just 
hiring a bunch of other people just to do their tasks yeah. rather than collectively bringing it up. I think you understand so where I'm going with that. I do. And, and I want to challenge your thinking here to think, have you think differently, which is there's a supposition that you have in your thinking there, which is that uh, the way someone works smarter is by getting other people to do the work, whether it's scut work in the warehouse, working sweaty hard hours like you had or the Amazon warehouse employees that you hear about or something. And, and or you're working the smart like the the owner of the company who's just kind of sitting on a beach re- enjoying life. And I, I would challenge that thinking. Um, I used to think, oh, I'll build a company and I'll make sure I'm a good person by taking a percentage of what I earn and give to charity. Mm-hmm. And a book challenged my thinking. And the book basically said, look, the best way that you can do good in the world is by building an extraordinary company. And, and I think that's true. The, the place that I will have the biggest impact in contributing to the welfare of other people, and I mean this sincerely, outside of my family and raising my kids and being a, a good husband with my wife, for me is going to be the company that I do. It's going to impact my, my team members. It's going to impact their families. Um, it's going to impact all my clients. When I look at things like you, you have some business realities. The business has to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And for the business to be sustainable, it has to be profitable. Otherwise, you have no sustaining with that part. But I look at this and I say, okay, how can my business do good in the world? Not through charitable efforts, although that's wonderful too, but the core service or product that I create, if I'm not doing something good in the world, I'm in the wrong business with that part. Team members, if I, if I look at this value economy, how can I create a company that people love working? So uh, for example, one of the chapters in the book, we talk in there about this idea of engaging your team. Look at nonprofits. So in the course of 2017, which is the last year we have statistics for it, over 900 million people donated time to charity. They wow. performed over a trillion dollars of service without being paid. How would you treat your best people if they were volunteers, if they weren't employees? Now, paid volunteers, because your best people, they are volunteers. They could easily go across the street, make more money. Um, and if the only thing keeping them there at your place of work is inertia or compensation, that the first thing that comes to jar that relationship, you'll lose them. So what can I do? You know, people listening to this podcast are probably smaller business owners. Great. I can offer flexibility like my staff. Um, I'll share with it. You know, Kim, who runs our marketing, she just got back from her trip. She took her family to the coastline. She has a degree of flexibility of location, a degree of flexibility on schedule in a way that no one else could offer her. I can't compete on certain benefits if she wants to go to work for a Fortune 50 company. You know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to outbid me on price. They're going to outbid me on um, probably some of the training programs, but I can take and give her esteem. Mm. I can, uh, I can give her affirmation by letting her have an impact. I can give her flexibility. I can give her a place where she is valued, where she can create value by her following the same things. Like for example, uh, do I want her tied to email every day, doing nothing more than just responding reflexively to email? No. I want to make sure that she's blocked off 5, 10, 15 hours of her best time each week, just like I do, to create value for the company. Hmm. And if I can project that through the company and build a company that has more depth than any one person, what I'm doing is I'm creating a workplace where people really want to be because they can make a difference and make a living with that part. I I don't want my team members working 70, 80 hours a week. That would kill me. First of all, it would feel inconsistent with what our values are. I don't think that that's good business. I, I see many companies that'll have people working 80, 100 hour work weeks. Well, 
okay, their one heart attack or one mental breakdown from losing that person and having all the wheels fall right off the bus. So how do I create a workplace where I reward compensation, attention, affirmation, opportunity, responsibility for creating value and do that in a sane, sane, humane way of doing it? I, I don't think I have to make the choice between extraordinary value creation and taking advantage of the people that work with me. I don't. I think that's a false dilemma. Hmm. I like that a lot. That's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think that, especially when you talk about like, even like an email assistant, right? Someone whose primary goal is to do customer service related work, even allowing them to dedicate time of their best time to add value to the company, maybe improve their systems, do you know projects that they think could make their life and their job easier. I think that's a very, very interesting uh, way to look at things. So I appreciate that. I want to switch now because I have some questions about, and I know the listeners as well, I want to switch to kind of your, how you got into learning about how to build a business, not just a job, right? And being able to remove yourself from the process. I would venture to say, based on our conversation, based on the books that you've written and the little that I know about you, that you could probably step away from your company for a few weeks and everything be just fine, right? Most people, an overwhelming majority of people, especially in you know this space of their business, so we we target a lot of people that are startup to under a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, I'm sorry, hundred thousand dollars a month or less, like kind of in that that uh, frame. Most of them could not walk away from their business for even a week without it falling apart. So take us back to when that verse became for you. It sounds like you were you know into your company. You drew a line in the sand with your business partner over the next three years. But like, what happened? And how did you learn that? I'll share three things that have worked really well with that. So one of them we call building strategic depth. So the first of all is most of how the know-how and knowledge in the company is informally kept in the head of the business owner or in a couple key employees. If they have any systems, they're done on scraps of paper, post-its, or they're kept on individual separate computers. So we call it your UBS, the ultimate business system. My business partner and I way back when um, used to love acronyms. So we came up with business system, but the acronym was not very appropriate. So we added the word ultimate in front of it. <laughs> and so it's a collection of all your systems. And, and, and if someone wants more on this, they can certainly go to chapter four, the freedom formula. But here's what it is in a nutshell. How do I centralize in one cloud-based place where I have all the systems that aren't captured in a, in a software platform? Um, so if I'm using a project management tool. I'm not going to put that in, in, in my UBS, but the, the videos for how a new person uh, takes on a new client, um, the checklist for how we work with a new vendor, the standardized template for a contract we use with all new suppliers. All that's going to be centralized. And I'm going to think to myself, what would be the five to seven main categories? You know, sales, marketing, operations, finance, team, um, leadership. And inside of that, I'm going to pick one area to start with. Let's say I mm. choose HR. Um, team. Great. My sub areas are going to include hiring, recruiting. Uh, second sub area in there, like that might find that this is going to be section two, 2.0 of my UBS. So 2.1 hiring, 2.2 uh, onboarding, 2.3 training, 2.4 benefits and HR admin, 2.5 exiting people. And so I just load it with what I currently have for systems. And then I just ask an easy question. What one system don't we have that costs us the most or hurts us the most or could hurt us the most for not having? that I could start on this quarter. I build one system this quarter or one piece of the system this quarter. And initially, Josh, it's just going to be the owner doing this work. They might only have two or three part-time people around them. Later on, when you start having a few full-time people with you, ask them to do the same thing in their area of the company. 
the key is, is this is not building a manual. This is not creating a policies and procedures manual. It's out of date the moment it is. This is about creating a, a company where it's a discipline in your company to build systems, use systems, refine systems, and store systems in a place where other people can find them, which means naming them sanely so that the next person who searches the folder finds it instantly. If they don't find it within 60 seconds, they're going to assume it doesn't exist. They're going to start a new version of it. Now you have two versions and neither one's got the best of it. So your UBS becomes less valuable. If it's less valuable, they use it less. If they use it less, it becomes even more less valuable and you have a a spiraling situation. So I need to make it progressively more valuable. That's Mm. one. Two, um, how do I focus on, I mean, I'll give you a simple technique. We call it the sweet spot analysis. So this is in chapter three. Um, and if they want to download a version of this tool, go ahead. Actually, I I do want to get to that, but really quick for, for your systems, what software do you use to keep everything organized? Yeah. Great question. So, I mean, today's world, any of the cloud-based tools will work well. So if they're a Microsoft person, they can use drive, uh, you know, for Microsoft, you know, the, the office 365 has a built-in component for that. You know, Google drive works well, Dropbox, we use ignite. It's a paid version. It has a little bit more, um, security features and and granular control of things. I've, I've liked it. We've got clients who will use all of them. So, you know, Dropbox, Google, Microsoft are probably the big ones that most of our clients use. Okay, um, so I'm not too far off. We use Google Drive and then we also, you know, communicate with Slack. So we're yep. on in there. But what, the one key with it is, is if they do everything cloud browser-based, what happens is, is that they're not going to save everything that they're doing. So specifically... If I set up, for example, um, a folder on my computer that's all my Dropbox stuff, I don't want to do all my files through a browser to get into the UBS because what will happen is invariably I'll have stuff saved locally that doesn't get in there. But if I treat it just like a folder on my drive, yep. everything will get in there. And that's pretty important. I've just seen that go awry. Yeah, we, we do that pretty heavily, actually. like I'm pretty anal about making sure, because it's something that we've had to grow in the last eight months, but like we don't use Microsoft Word. We don't use anything, Excel, like nothing on a computer. It all has to be in the cloud because if one person works on it, it has to be updated. So everything on Drive that we use, it's all through Drive. Excel, it's Google Sheets. Microsoft Word, it's Google Docs um, so that it is all cloud-based. Great. As long as everyone's doing that, you're good. The moment you hire someone in your case who's probably 40 or above, and I'm 49, you're going to find that they're going to put it on their local computer and upload and they won't upload everything. But if everyone's doing it, you're totally good there. Perfect. Um, I want to continue down this road, but I do want to stop. For those people that are listening right now, tell us about your book a little bit. We'll get to this more at the end, but where can people go find out more about the book that's coming out, get some you know, some uh, sneak peeks of it, stuff like that? Sure. So the title of the book is The Freedom Formula, How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Your Family, Health, or Life. And essentially what the book's done is it's, it's done to give you a way to operationalize how to work smarter. The first half tells you how to do it individually. The second half tells you how to do it with the team. It's written for any entrepreneur, business owner, or executive who wants to to say, how do we actually do this? Mechanics, step-by-step, not the what to do, but the how to do the what to do in terms of working smarter. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, any local bookseller, Tattered Book, if you're in Denver, the Tattered Book, you know, Tattered Cover Bookstore, whatever you want with that. If you want to find more though, you can just go to freedomtoolkit.com, freedomtoolkit.com. And on that site, you'll find information about the book. You can even download two free chapters to see if it's for you. Um, and I, I think I think what they're going to find is that they they read even one chapter of that. They're going to if it's it's if it resonates, they're going to get the book. 
A hundred percent. And guys, you've sold me, man. I'm, I'm buying the book. I mean, any, anything when it comes to systems and organizing my life, God knows I need it. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I want to have that freedom as well. So um, guys, we're going to link that down in the description, both on YouTube, on uh, iTunes, on things of that nature, like anywhere down, you'll be able to find the link to the book, link to the sneak peeks as well. Check that out. Um, show some support there because it sounds like a super, super good book. Okay. Let's dive back into the figuring this thing out though. So systems. We talked about that. Like Point number one is documenting everything. If it's in your head or on scrap paper, it's not a real system. Yeah. And I would, I would go back further. The, the first starting point is to make the decision that I'm going to build an owner-independent company. I, I'm not going to get there as a light switch. I just flip the switch one day. It's going to be a progression. But having done this before myself, having coached thousands of companies through the same process, Give yourself three years, five years, 10 years. Any of your listeners can do the same thing themselves. And here's the cool part. Even if I never build an owner-independent company, and even if I'm still needed, I can still build a company where I can take time off. Uh, that's I, and that's part. my question. And I've, I'm glad you brought this up. Define what an owner-independent company really is, because I think there's a lot of misconception around that. Sure. So we define it this way. So first of all, it's not like owning a stock of Coca-Cola and I'm not going to work at all. We define it as if I'm working 10 hours or less per month, or if I could leave my business for three months or longer and have it be more valuable when I get back, to mm. be healthier, to have grown in my three-month absence, you've got an owner-independent company. So in that scenario, what does the owner do? If I'm working 10 hours a month or less or you know, can leave for three months, I come back. I'm an entrepreneur, right? If, and most people are that are, you know, are listening and wanting to do this. We're going to get bored, right? It's not like I've never I met anyone that, that can just... You know, I, I see all these people with like 30, 40, 50 million dollar excess and they go and like a year later, they're back into it because they're like, we're so bored, right? So That's like right. when you get to that point, do you recommend still working like more in the company than you have to and continue to help it grow, started something new? Like what does someone that has achieved that do with their time? Great. So let me give you the model. So you have three levels of building a business. Level one, the startup, just getting going, find those early customers. Level two, the owner-dependent company, the company that works, but it works because it's relying on the owner. Level three, owner-independent company. At level three, you now get to make a choice. Do I want to sell? Do I want to continue to own it passively? Or do I want to continue to stay in the business? Just because I can leave the business doesn't mean I should. Right. So I've sold a company because I was no longer passionate about it. It worked well. The company I'm in right here today, I don't want to sell it. I want it to be a generational business. Not necessarily that my sons are going to take over, but I want the business to create value in the world after I'm no longer working in it. And I don't see myself stopping. I'm 49. I don't see myself stopping anywhere in the next 10 years. I, I've done that before. It's boring. But I don't want to start a new deal. I love what I'm doing. I want to continue it. But I, I'm smart about it. I'm going to set a hard stop. I'm going to work 40 hours a week. That's my hard stop. I'm like a, an astronaut. Those are my consumable of, of oxygen. That's all I have to work with. I'm going to take 10 weeks a year of vacation. Um, that's what I've decided for me fits best. So once they've reached that point, they don't have to quit the business. They just get to choose intentionally how they want to be in the business. Mm. That makes sense. What do you do with 10 weeks of vacation? Where do you go? <laughs> so I live in a gorgeous spot, so I stay in Jackson for a lot of it. We went to Spain this past year. I, I'm, I'm less into travel. My wife's much more into that. We go camping a lot. Um, uh, simple stuff, national parks, other things. Do you, are you into sports at all? I used to be. I used to play uh, field hockey in the U.S. national team, but I haven't done sports for probably 20 years. I 
once I got a little bit older, it's harder. So I'm very active, but it's more hiking, camping types of, of activity, working out, but not a sport. I get hurt if I try to do it. My brain thinks I'm, I'm young. My body tells me I'm not. Do you, do you watch sports at all? No, I'm much more of a participant. I don't want to watch other people do cool stuff. I want to do cool stuff myself. You want, you want to do cool stuff. Hey, I, I feel that. Is there ever a point in your life, like in your business? I don't know. You made it big somehow, right? Like, I mean, like big. I have no idea how much you're worth. I don't know how much you make. None of my business. But is there ever a point where like, I don't know, you have a $10 billion exit or something like that, right? Where you're just like, screw it, I'm done. Like, I'm just, I'm super done and I'm never working again. Or are you always going to be working? Yeah. So, so for me, um, whether it's 10 billion, 10 million, 10,000, you know, it, the net worth and income is relative to how much your lifestyle costs. We call that your S factor, right? How much you're spending to live. But the reality is I, I don't want to not work. So for me, I, I just want to work on my terms. I, I want to enjoy and I want to have meaning and fulfillment. For me, working is a piece of that. Um, it's something that brings me a great deal of joy, creation, and, and the rest of that. So, you know, let's say I had a $10 billion exit. Fantastic. Um, first of all, I'm going to continue to do something that I find meaningful and worthwhile, which is probably going to be a portion of that in business and a portion outside of that, health, family, relationships, the rest of it. I'm doing that now. I'll just probably do it on a bigger scale. Mm. So when it comes to making money. And when it comes to uh, like, you're successful in business, you've got some businesses that you run, you're making, I would imagine far, far more than your monthly expenses would be, right? Where are you putting that money? Are you a stock market type person? Are you a real estate type person? Are you a just sure. buy businesses? Like, wh where's it going? Yeah, before I do that, just I want to finish off the answer to the earlier question. Oh. You said, well, what did I do early stages? So yeah, the yeah, first yeah. was I made the decision. The secondly is I, I have to focus my company's limited discretionary best talent and attention on the things that matter. So every quarter, I'm going to create a one-page plan of action. I'm going to have one, two, or three focus areas. And this is basically where I'm going to put my discretionary time or later on when I have other staff member, their best discretionary time. And this, I'll leave one more tool here. I want people to be able to walk away and do something yeah, with this. Yeah, please, please. Oh, the sweet spot analysis. So ask yourself the question, what's the one limiting factor for your company? The one ingredient, capital L, capital F, more than anything else that currently constrains your growth of your company? And you might say it's sales. Okay, if it's sales, is it you need more leads coming in the front end? Or no, maybe you have enough leads. What you really need is, is better sales capacity or better conversion. Is it better conversion caused by... And, and the more narrowly I can define that limiting factor, now I do a sweet spot analysis. I, I brainstorm 10, 20 different ideas to push that limiting factor back. And I put each of those ideas in, in, in series through two different filters, low-hanging fruit and home runs. I ask of every one of my ideas. So if, my, if, if for me, I need more leads is my number one limiting factor, great. Let's come up with all my ideas for creating more leads. Is this a low-hanging fruit? Meaning, is it easy to do, high likelihood of working? I ask of every item on my, my list, is this low-hanging? Is this low-hanging? And if it is, I check the box for low-hanging. And then in a second separate pass, I ask, is this a home run? If it's a home run, it means if it works, will it have a big impact? Is this a home run? Is this a home run? I go through the list. And what I'm looking for is the one, two, or three ideas that are both low-hanging fruits and home runs. And by definition, that's probably the, ba the best place for me to focus my initial discretionary best talent on this quarter. It's, it's already a high leverage place because it's my number one limiting factor. Number two, it's an idea that's low-hanging fruit, easy to do, high likelihood of working, and 
home run. It's a big impact. That's my sweet spot. And if someone wants to get a download the form for that, they can go to freedomtoolkit.com. And as part of that toolkit, I hope they get the book, but even if they did, they can still get the toolkit for free. And in there's the PDF for, for how to, to do that with an example filled out for them to, to learn from. But if I do those things, now, where do I invest the money? Um, early well, on, hold, hold, hold on. I, 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 you know, I do want to touch on that because that's, that's amazing. Like that's really, really good information that I think a lot of people need to hear. And that was freedom toolkit, freedomtoolkit.com, freedomtoolkit.com guys go check that out. Cause it's super good. So you've gone through, you've identified home runs and low hanging fruit. Where's the sweet spot or, or what activities are going to be both of them that are going to move my business forward. Right. For the person that, cause I hear this a lot too. They're making, they're, they're in the startup phase. They're 10,000 bucks a month or less, right? And they've got expenses. Maybe they're bringing home, I don't know, three grand a month, right? Like they're just kind of making ends meet and they're everywhere. They're scatterbrained. They haven't really clearly defined yet what they're doing. They're still trying to figure it out. And maybe this isn't who you work with, but I feel like you're kind of smart. So you'll know. Um, so like I'm at this point and it's like, okay, I know I want to do this, right? Like I know that this is kind of the direction that I'm going, but I'm not really making money in that yet. I know there's a market there. I just haven't figured it out yet. But I've got these other things that are kind of keeping the business alive. And if I just go like 100% into it, it's not that number one, I don't have the money, but let's even pretend I did have the money. I've got all these other responsibilities. I can't just like cut off, right? right? I can't just make the switch. What's your advice to them? So we call this dilemma, and it's funny, I, a lot of our clients start us initially had the same dilemma. Now, they tend to be people who have businesses that are half a million dollars to $20 million is, is a sweet spot of who we work with. But, but we call this the dilemma between cash flow and capacity. And so cash flow is the today's reality. I need to have money coming in today. Capacity is things that would be for the future. And if you think about that as a, as a scale, and in the middle is the fulcrum and the balancing it off, the more financial strength I have, the more I can move the fulcrum to be more skewed to the future, the more I'm on the financial edge, the more I have to skew for today's needs. So if I'm doing an action plan and I'm a company that's a startup, I might have to have the first one, two, three quarters that I do my action plan, everything be about today. Things that in the next 90 to 180 days pay off. But somewhere, I'm gonna build enough of a cushion to be able to have one of my three focus areas this quarter be something that might have a payoff six, 12 months down the road. I can't afford to have everything pay off three years from today because I'll be out of business. So if I think about it from that frame, the business's financial strength allows me to give some to the future. But early on, I might have to go 95% of my energy on today's needs. And the key for that person is I can't go after 20 things. I don't have the resources to do that. I'll give an example for our business coaching company. We used to have a line of business that did online training programs. We had a line of business that did public workshops for business leaders and entrepreneurs. And we had a line that was our business coaching. We were under $5 million a year in sales. We could not do all three of those things world-class. The best decision we ever made was to focus on one of those things. In this case, we chose business coaching as a, ser- as a service. And we stopped offering and selling those other things separately, which was really painful because we derived significant revenue there. Right. Um, but it's what's led to huge growth. I mean, we've tripled over the last six years, seven years, um, company revenue and profit because we focused on fewer things that matter more. So, you know, you have to get yourself to a place where you have a little bit of cushion, focus on today then. But afterwards, some of what you have to do is say no to stuff because if you don't say no to something, 
um, you're going to find yourself scrambling and half doing too many things that yeah. won't come to pay off. Yeah. I mean, was it Warren Buffett said the most powerful word in the English language is no? Yeah. There you go. So it's a big one. Okay. Appreciate that. Now, wrapping it up, let's move over to the investment of the money side of things. You've made a bunch of money. Now what? Yeah. The, the easiest thing for somebody like early on, I tried, I, I, I used to do a lot of coaching and teaching on real estate. That was my first company. And I, I, I did hundreds of single family house investments and our clients bought and sold over a billion dollars of properties. So I, when I sold my company, it went a lot into real estate. Now I sold it at the very beginning of 2006. So in 2006, I bought a lot of real estate. Oh no. <laughs> what I've realized since then is I've gotten much more strategic. So for me, if, if I'm on the early end, here's the simplest thing to do. Index, equity index, S&P 500, total stock market. But here's the one piece. There is a place for you to get risk-free return premium over and above without taking on any more risk that they should absolutely max out first, which is tax advantage on their investing. If they're not maxing out their Roth IRA, if they don't have a, a 401k or solo 401k for their company, or at least a SEP IRA, before I worry about what I'm going to do with my hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of annual investments, with my thousands of dollars, I just do a simple Roth, especially because most of your listeners are young. I do it for my kids. You know, I'm going to invest and max it out six grand a year. I'm going to stop doing that when they're 20. When they turn 65, they're going to have three or four million dollars of tax-free money in there just from what I did in the first 20. So if I'm in my 20s, what I wished I would have done, I wished I would have maxed out all my retirement options and just did it with a simple pure equity index fund, low cost, should be less than one half of 1% for my expense fee. If I did nothing more than doing that and rode that out for 30 years, 40 years, you're going to have a fortune in there and you're going to have a secure, really good freedom in that retirement time. Interesting. All right. I always like to ask that question from different people because the answers so vary from you know different people uh, around them. So I, I love, yeah, I love but it. I, I would also caution the best place for them is to invest in themselves and their business before that. But in a, for if, sure. they're, if they're putting money into an investment, it's less about what they're investing and in, it's how they're investing initially. Mm. Once they max out all the retirement stuff, then the other stuff matters more. What is your personal favorite place? Not from a strategic standpoint, like not, not coaching other people on how to do it, but just for you personally, where's your your personal favorite place to store large sums of cash in investments? Is it business? I like, I like asset-backed debt. Um, so it might, you know, oh, I, really? I don't okay. need, yeah, I don't need growth from my investments from the perspective. I want more what we call PRI, passive residual income at this stage. So, um, you know, I certainly, I do the equity indexing myself. I do commercial real estate and those are growth plays. My company is my biggest growth play by far. Yeah. But I, I like the cash flow that comes off of really good debt that's backed by real estate. I like that. Conservatively underwritten. And again, I wouldn't just go do that. I would actually wait till I had some expertise in it. Yeah. Something I'm pretty good at. So that works well for me. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I super appreciate this. I want to go to rapid fire questions because we end every interview with just a couple rapid fire questions really quick. Um, But before we do that, once again, just tell everybody, the listeners, where they can find out more about you slash your book, um, just in case they missed it beforehand. Yeah, they can go ahead and get a sneak peek. They can get the toolkit. They can learn more about us at freedomtoolkit.com, freedomtoolkit.com. Freedomtoolkit.com, guys. And your book comes out when? September 3rd. So hopefully when this gets played, it'll be out and available on all the different bookstores. All right. So it'll be out and available by then, guys. Go check it out. September 3rd. uh, If it's past September 3rd, it's available. If not, go to Freedom Toolkit and get it as soon as it comes out. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I want to move to rapid fire questions. 
The first question is not so much a rapid fire question, but I do want to ask it because it's a personal question that I have. I'm 25 years old. Okay. What would you tell someone like me? I grew up pretty conservatively. Okay. And I'm not saying I want to do this necessarily, but you know, there's the urge of every 25 year old that has a little bit of money to go do this. If the urge is, yo, I've got hundred grand saved up and I can just go live it up. Right. I can travel for, you know, one or two years. Maybe, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I've been 22, 23. I've got a good network. I've done my business. I can pay my bills, whatever. I'm not quite to the point yet where I'm focused and driven enough to want to go and actually build a real company. Cause I meet a lot of people like this. This isn't me as much. I'm pretty more conservative with my money. But like, would you say, you know what? If you're going to go blow 20, 30, $40,000, go do it while you're young go travel the world, go see, do it, get it out of your system and then come down and sit down with everything and get started to work. Or are you of the mentality that says, pay your dues, just focus, it'll pay off in the long run. I say, don't do either one. I say, do it along the way. I mean, wh- why would you want it to be a one-time shot thing with that part? You know what? You, you, you have a geo flexibility today that people could only dream of once upon a time. You want to go, go live overseas for three months, go, go, go live overseas and work from overseas and do, do great stuff with that part. I wouldn't do one or the other. And uh, I, I would do them both. And I wouldn't just do them for one year. I do it for the next 70 years of your life. Hopefully you live that long. I love that answer. All right. Uh, true rapid fire questions now. Favorite airline to fly? <laughs> Delta. Delta. I love Delta. It's my favorite one ever. Um, most interesting or like famous person I should say that you've ever met? Oh, gosh. Um, most interesting famous person that I met. Yeah, I would, I would probably say there's a guy by the name of Jason Jennings, a New York Times bestselling author. The guy is just fascinating to talk with. Interesting. Okay. This is more uh, his book. You should read it. It's a great book. What's it called? Less is more. It's one of my 10 favorite business books. Less wrote is it 30 more. years ago and it's still a classic. Awesome. Huh. Well, I'll have to check that one out as well. Um, secret like dream fantasy kind of thing that, or maybe not secret, but like that you want to do at some point in your life, like a bucket list thing that you want to do that you haven't done yet. Yeah. Um, go off for a year with just my wife and I without kids when they're grown and just go travel working with that part of it along the way, but just go travel and live out of a motorhome for a year. That's something I want to do. Ooh, out of a motorhome for a whole year. That's, that's I don't want awesome. to do it with my kids, but I want to do it with just my wife and I. <laughs> I understand that entirely. Uh, how many more books do you think you'll write over your lifetime? 30. 30 more books. Wow. All oh, right. We got a, a whole ton of books to come from you. That's awesome. All right. Last question that I've got. I asked this to everyone on the program. It's the last question that we always end with. Um, and I deliberately do not tell you it beforehand uh, because I just want the kind of the, the raw, unfiltered, you know, whatever comes to your mind in this. Fast forward to the end of your life. You're on your deathbed. And everything that you've done, the money that you've made, the impact that you have, it's all gone. Uh, however, every single person that you've touched and impacted either directly or indirectly, you get to leave them with a final message or word of advice. What would that message be? You're enough. Hmm. Really? Just that? Yeah. You're enough. I mean, we, we, I, I watch some of the world's most affluent people still struggling and chasing to fill their hole in their heart with more stuff, with more accolades, with more visible success. But we're enough. Hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. That's super, super powerful. David, Thank you so much for your time. Guy go, guys, go check out his books. David, any last words from you? I have a pleasure to be here. I, I just want everyone to know you, you absolutely can do this. Um, there's so many resources for you today that you didn't have once upon a time. Go for it. Live a great life. Do good stuff through your business. And uh, thank you for letting me participate today. 
Absolutely. Guys, we will be linking in the book, all the descriptions and everything down in the titles down below this. Uh, so make sure to check those out. We'll also do an email blast out when the book comes out because uh, I'm going to be checking it out. And so I appreciate that. Guys, as always, hustle, hustle. God bless. Do not be afraid to think different because those of us that think different are going to be the ones that change the world. I love you all and I will see you on the next episode. Take it easy, fam. Peace. Yo, what's up, guys? You've been listening to the Think Different Theory with myself, Josh Forty, which I like to call a new paradigm of thinking. And real quick, I got a question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message of positivity and making the world a better place is if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this is out on that you like my stuff and that I'm doing something right. So if you could take like three seconds out of your day and subscribe, leave a rating and a review, I would be forever grateful for you. Also, I want to hear from you. I want to know your feedback, your ideas and your questions for future episodes. So be sure to hit me up on Instagram in the DM at Josh 40 or via email contact at thinkdifferenttheory.com.